Who Feeds Us? from Farmerama. Episode 2 Land, Animal, Journey. This series is a chorus of voices from people across the British Isles, people on the land and the seas, on allotments and city roofs, the stories of farmers, growers, community leaders, healers, chefs, beekeepers, fishers, and others. This is Who Feeds Us. We often hear that animal products are unsustainable. In reality, though, it's often the way these products are produced that's unsustainable. A system that, for example, requires dairy farmers to pour their milk down the drain in a crisis, rather than selling it to their communities, is clearly not a system that's focused on nourishing people or planet. So who are the farmers, fishers, cheesemakers and butchers who are finding new ways to connect with their customers, their communities and their animals? And how could we all benefit from knowing more about how our cows are raised, our meat is slaughtered and our fish is caught? In this episode, we hear from a fishmonger in the Shetland Isles and a farmer in Wales who provides organic halal meat to customers across the UK. We learn how the pandemic has impacted their work and their relationships with the people they serve. But we begin in County Armagh, Northern Ireland, at the start of September, with a visit to the dairy farm and cheesemaking business run by Dean Wright. And you can see another small cottage in the background, um, which was Mudwall Cottage, that dates back to 1600s. Now, we lived in that cottage until I was 10, um, and that would have been the original house that was bought in 1820 with two or three acres of land on this holding. Our local town has a small population of around 25,000 people. It's not a very big place in terms of, you know, some of the other places in the, in the UK and Ireland, but nice place to live and nice place to grow up, so I'm truly thankful for what we had as children and young adults. There was no central heating in that house, and it stayed naturally warm because the walls are three feet thick, warm in the winter, naturally cool in the summer. I think that's total sustainability for you. I'm Dean Wright and I'm the founder member of Ballyless Dairies Limited here in Portadown, County Armagh, Northern Ireland. It's their way of talking to people, I suppose. I was born into a farming family. We had a small family farm. I went out and worked in the meat trade, in the red meat industry, for a number of years. But I suppose as life went on, I would like to do something for myself as I had a family. I'm the youngest of four sons and I farm the farm and that's basically where our milk comes from for the cheese plant. The milk doesn't have far to go. Just a couple of miles down the road that runs alongside the 200-acre family farm to a small industrial estate where the Ballylisk cheese is made. I'm 47 now. I look back over the years, there's four generations of the farm that I remember. My own parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents, and then my two daughters. So I can remember actually five generations on this farm. Who's going to be the sixth generation? I have no idea. No, my daughters are the next generation. Um, I would never discourage them, but I'm not encouraging them to farm. You know, who knows? Time will tell that one. So let's go in and we'll, we'll see what's happening in here. In their original, pre-pandemic vision of this year, Dean and his colleague Chloe were looking to continue production of their trademark triple rose white mould cheese, which they describe as decadent. 
as well as developing new varieties at the plant. Filtered air, heat, hot water, water storage, cold water storage, water treatment and everything else happens up here. The business has been going quite a few years now, but we have been trading for approximately 27, 28 months. We did a lot of research and development work, how we were going to structure our business, what did we want to bring to the marketplace. Those were all the things that we did actually before we constructed the plant. So what happens here is this is the main production room of the cheese. The pasteurizer directly places the milk into the cheese vats. The milk is cultured, turned into cheese, curds and whey. Then it's moulded off into these moulds, as you can see on the table, and then it will go on to the next phase, which will be salted on day two, and then it'll go into a ripening room at a specific temperature and specific humidity, and it stays there for a period of weeks. We'll move on there next. We catered for food service, which was predominantly the hospitality industry, you know, the high-end hotels, high-end delis, restaurants, that type of things. Now lockdown came, they didn't have a choice. It wasn't their choice to, to close their businesses. It was forced upon them and forced upon the nation. Um, it probably was one of the worst business days for us as food producers. We lost approximately 70% of our business within 24 hours. Phones were ringing. If the orders weren't dispatched, do not dispatch it. And I don't want any more product. We are now closing, etc., etc. It went on. So lose 70% of your business within a 24-hour period is quite harrowing. We're now in the ripening room, um, where the cheese enters the ripening room on day two. This temperature that we're in at the moment is absolutely perfect for mould growth. We're going to look at some cheese actually which is on day four, which actually hasn't developed this mould just yet. At day six, you will see that nice cream colour will actually turn into a very, it will be like mist in the morning on day, late day five, early day six by early day seven it will be totally white so there's a very quick transition once the mould starts to grow basically the mould is a protective layer on the outside of the cheese and also that mould actually helps to break down you know the milk and turns those curds into you know gives them a taste profile how smooth how chalky they are i would say we were seven days from closure in terms of young business has no natural reserves I think that was the key driver. What do we need to do to survive the storm? So we are now in the warm part of the factory. We're sitting here at probably plus one. We're in the dispatch chill where you can see all the finished product wrapped and uh, labelled with our logo ready to go. And it's held at one degree here. sleep with one eye open you get very good inspirational ideas you know think and think and think and keep thinking outside the box what resources have we to play with what resources are we good at making the big challenge for me was the consumer can't get to the shop so the obvious idea was take it to the consumer that was a very good starting point and then what are we going to take to the consumer what does the consumer use every day the consumer uses milk where do we have milk? We have milk on the farm. You know, we had the processing equipment for the cheese plant here. It wasn't a big transition. Chloe and myself, probably some of the longest and the hardest week we did in terms of seven days, you're talking about 20 hours a day, but to turn a concept into reality within five to six days, I, I think it was a relatively good performance. We refocused, regrouped, and within approximately four to five days, 
we basically put a door the doorstep delivery of liquid milk in the local area within 10 mile radius. As well as the milk from his dairy herd, Dean and his team invited a range of other local artisan producers to add their products to the delivery service, creating a new network of producers who had a market again. Um, Sammy skimmed whole milk and also double cream and whipping cream. Tonight's deliveries are sitting there ready already. We'll be able to do our doorstep deliveries tonight at approximately six o'clock. Yeah, we need 37 in total. Um, so we'll have... Well, I've got 12 under 20 in. That's 32, so you need five more. Right. We're going to do a door-to-door step milk delivery service in the evening time, so your, your workload then starts again from sort of 5 o'clock to 10, 11 o'clock, whatever time that goes on to. So it's not lockdown changed our working day quite a lot. We were just making cheese, so it was sort of we could plan our day quite simply. But now you can't plan for the way other people are thinking. You know, I don't think anybody anticipated what came down the track at us in, in March of this year. And I suppose I have a saying for that, you know, we can't change the direction of the wind, but we can adjust the sails. We brought all our products in, not only for the consumer, but also in support of those local producers that were in the same um, position as ourselves that maybe lost a lot of their business but didn't have the avenue or the conduit to take it to the consumer. You know, so we thought, why don't we help the other businesses and also provide good quality high-end foods to the customer base that we have taking milk? Why should they not get fresh strawberries, bacon, bread, apple juice, and these things are all made, you know, locally by good business colleagues and friends that we have here. So why would we not all got together and try to help each other? And I think that's what it was. It was about helping each other as well as taking another good quality food to the consumer. being in direct contact with the end user who is the consumer it is a very nice place to be we need to react to their needs you know what do they want to eat you know what is the new foods i i think this is the really fun part of this business probably about 500 growth year on year gosh and uh, well, i'm not surprised london has done very well the queen eats this every every week she does not she does, yeah. for goodness sake. yeah so portman mason probably be our biggest customer I am very proud of the people who do eat our food on a daily basis our closest neighbours, people within 10 mile radius, people within Northern Ireland, Southern Ireland, Europe, UK, the Queen, whoever it may be, every customer 
is a valued customer. That's absolutely brilliant. We'll get through that in no time. Make sure, so make sure, Moorish. Make sure and temper it well before you eat it. Oh, right. Is this boy out of the bath? Yes. He was a bad dog and rolled or something not very pleasant. These are some of the really nice moments that you get in business. Dear Mr. Dean Wright, both my wife and I want to thank you and your colleagues for giving us something wonderful in the midst of the pandemic. We bought a round of your belly lisk triple rose cheese and it is truly wonderful. We have travelled throughout France and Italy and your cheese is as good, if not better, than we have ever eaten on our adventures. Thank you so much for creating another great memory as we finish our round of cheese with crusty bread, a good red wine, over the next few days. Stay safe. What an amazing bit of post to open for somebody to take the time. Those are the really inspiring things of the journey that people can actually go to a shop, buy a card and take the time to write it and put a stamp on it and take it to a post box. I take a lot of pleasure from feeding people, cooking for them, talking about food, saying like this chicken was doing this, was eating this, and this is why it tastes like that. Flavours, taste is such a big expression of the diversity and, in my opinion, the bounty of creation. My name's Mossin Hassanin. I am a farmer in South Wales who has an interest in regenerative agriculture and permaculture. And being proactive in the, um, the fight for food sovereignty. It's my life's work, really. Mosin lives with his family at an old farm in the Welsh Valleys. Tirwen Vach Farm, or otherwise known as Tirwen Farm. I've just practised saying that name only. That's it. I don't speak Welsh or anything, you know. But um, there are a few different translations, but I think it means small yew house. So, like, that's the little farm with the yew tree. But I renamed it Harmony Farm, just to make it easy. He moved to Wales from London, where he'd spent a decade in the fundraising business. It was a cushy job and it was really easy and I got paid a nice amount of money to not do too much stressful work, um, but I got comfortable. Over those years, his growing interest in nutrition and health, in the slow food movement and permaculture practices, began to take up more and more of his time. That's all I read and all I looked on YouTube, like in my lunchtime, I'll be just looking at farms and stuff, and I thought, this is, this is what I want to do, this is, this is it. The countryside was beckoning. We've had over 300 people come up to the farm since we opened up for, like, unofficial visitors, you know, friends and family. So, yes, there is encouragement from my community. Mosin lives with his wife and four children, and they eat the farm's produce. He's fascinated by the overlaps between regenerative methods of producing food and the insights of his Islamic faith. This idea of permaculture fitted perfectly because it's the ethics, the element of the ethics inside permaculture, so fair share and people care, that it just completely superimposed perfectly onto our philosophy of what we were, you know, our spiritual goals. It's very closely linked to the Sufi understanding of Islam. Within that is a big thing about service to the community and transforming yourself through service. This lady from our community went out to Australia And she said something so powerful, she came back and she said, I went all the way to Australia to realise that turning off a tap is not about saving water. And 
you know something like something that just sticks in your head forever and and what that was is that it's about being proactive it's not about a result it's about being proactive kind of thing that was how in permaculture was introduced to me and then my teacher specifically my spiritual teacher was very encouraging of it Mosin is one of the business partners running Abrahams, a butcher and retailer of high-welfare, organic, halal meat and poultry. They have a strong customer base across the country, but the arrival of the pandemic brought uncertainty. We had no inclination of which way it was going to go. We, we, we caught on when the orders came in thick and fast, and that was it. We were like, this is going to be mad. You know when people say Christmas come early, that kind of implies that you're excited and happy. But when Christmas comes, we're scared. We're worried about business. We're worried about, you know, pushing it too far, making sure that the staff are, you know, resourced properly. Basically, Christmas came early with COVID, but it shocked us as well. It was just flat out for three months. And we had, like, Christmas week every week for, like, three months. It just was just nuts. We had people waiting three weeks for meat and stuff. Um, so quite difficult to manage, but at the same time, we realised that there's a lot more customers out there that want to interact with this. I think sometimes it was an availability issue. Like I had people asking me, look, I can't find meat. There's no meat in the halal shop and they're trying to charge. They're just profiteering. So I might as well just buy from you because you've kept your prices the same, but it's cheaper than what these profiteering people are doing or in my area. So we had a lot of that. We had like, you know, hundreds of more customers come on board on, on the website. You know, lots of people buying, trying and so on and so forth. So I reckon we increased business you know maybe a hundred percent for that time maybe even 200 percent but at the same time we weren't ready for that the courier network broke down because of the pressure that they were under there was so much logistics in it and it's all about not running before you can walk assalamu alaikum everyone my business partner contacted me yesterday and asked me to shoot a little video to kind of maybe deal with some of the, the worry and the fear that a lot of customers have expressed. I did a video, it's a, a small video, it's called Corona Situation, and it was just like put out in the newsletter to just give people reassurance that we're not going to raise our prices, we're going to get your meat to you, the meat is out there, we've got access to it. I think we got a lot of customers from that. So we can understand totally. He said to the farmers, look, we're going to pay you, you know, what you want. And they had respect for us, and they said we're not going to raise our prices just because we can. So we had this relationship with them. We've limited our chickens. On the website now you can buy three. I think that's the amount that I can buy because people are panic buying basically. And we had to, we had to stop that because it's not, it's not fair. We can't hoard. We've seen a lot of people asking questions that they weren't asking before. And I think this is indicative of the broader situation where people have been interacting with farms more. I think that the statistic that I read was that 8 million people bought directly from farms during COVID. There was definitely a, an explicit awakening. And I had text message after text message, phone call after phone call of people, you know, asking me these questions, you know, and, and what I saw from friends who I've been friends with a long time, they started to think, where is my food coming from? Even though I had been plugging it to them and talking to them for ages, they, they started to really ask that question. How... You know, food is flying all over the place just to get to us. Like how much they depend on Spain, for example, for fruits and vegetables. This really kind of clicked with a lot of people, I think. And the Muslim community, you know, one of the whole things about choosing the faith of Islam or even being brought up in the faith of Islam is the idea of justice. Like you cannot have this exploitation going on. And I think that kind of opened up people's eyes. 
The American poet and farmer Gary Snyder writes about the interconnectedness and interdependence of the food chain as being a kind of big potlatch we're all members of. He adds, to acknowledge that each of us at the table will eventually be part of the meal is not just being realistic. It is allowing the sacred to enter and accepting the sacramental aspect of our shaky, temporary, personal being. This growing consciousness around food that most identifies, it seems to be about being present and aware, being reverent and grateful. These are central tenets of the idea of halal meat. As well as farming, Mohsen works part-time as a halal slaughterman in a local abattoir. I walk into the slaughterhouse, I tell them I'm here. They then make a break in the line, which is basically a wash down and a clean up and a, and a get ready for halal. I then slaughter the birds the exact same way as the last person has, which is basically a stun bath and then a, a bleed out. FSA certified, no issues whatsoever, there's no difference. The only difference is, is that I'm conscious of it, I'm conscious of God, and I make that intention when I'm there. So for my community, they want someone who is Muslim to kill their animals for them and be conscious of that. And that's what halal is in its kind of loosest terms. I've taken over some, from someone and I could smell alcohol in his breath. Like, this is like four o'clock in the morning, you know, or five o'clock in the morning. And then I've like, you know, just probed and questioned in, in a very gentle way. And, you know, he's actually expressed to me that he suffers from this and he needs to drink to cope with it. And I don't need to do that. Okay, yes, I'm not there full time, but the reality is that I'm serving my community and that transcends that effect that killing multiple animals will have on the spirit so that's one side of it the second thing is it's actually a duty within the islamic tradition and one of the most strong sayings of the prophet is if you slaughter slaughter well make sure you sharpen your knife and this hadith or saying of the prophet is about implementation of ihsan or perfection in your actions this idea that every single action you have to do it perfectly on this earth and that's what your purpose is so it drives this mindfulness and purposefulness of what you're doing. So when I approach that animal, especially on farm, on farm, I've many times tears have come to my eyes, but I've also understood how important it is what I'm doing. This animal has to be killed in the right way. And I'm the right man for the job. You know, I've even read an article about a vegan slaughter woman, irrespective of religion, but she's purpose driven. She said, I don't eat animals, but I know I'm very good at killing them quickly. So I should be the person who does it. You know, being the person who's in a conscious state, this is reverence in itself. And then you take on the next level where you're actually praising God. So you're being grateful at that time. So the phrase that is said is Bismillah wa Allahu Akbar. And Bismillah means in the name of God and Allahu Akbar means great. And what you do is you elevate that animal and you're then elevating yourself and your spirit to deal with that harsh reality of taking life. I've killed a cow on my own farm and I cried very big tears when I killed her on this farm and my son had to actually console me like he had to say you know and he went through that and he when I he described the event the other day and it was like it was a photographic memory he literally didn't miss a detail it was amazing he was seven years old blood was I was you know blood was pouring on my knees and I was crying next to this cow that for me is what is missing from our understanding of our connection with meat 
I took so much pride feeding a family the other day where I said, that fat has been rendered from an animal that has lived five minutes away and that's what we're using to cook with. I didn't have to fly in any oil from any country. I didn't have to process any oil. To localize the food, to be close to your food, this is the only way forward if you want to live that conscious way, I think, because you're going to get stuck in the global system. And COVID has exposed that. A hundred years ago, you knew the guy who killed the cow, you knew the farmer, but now it's like packaged up and sent to you. This idea of Taib, previously when the scholars looked at it, was talking about how you knew the person who grew the wheat so you can understand that the bread was coming from a conscious place. But that doesn't even exist now. Embedded in that is dignity because it's about that person being given the dignity to work, the dignity to express himself in his work. He's given a fair price. I think dignity and justice are completely embedded anyway because you can't, people's dignity will not be given unless there is justice. You don't just take because someone says to you is good, yeah? Make your own stuff, make your own creams, make your own beauty products. I even made my own raw milk baby formula for my twins. Like, take charge of yourself. You cannot just be a consumer, you've got to produce. You've got to be a creator rather than a consumer. My favourite time of year, I think, is possibly spring and early summer. Crops are planted, grass is growing, things are changing, you're coming out of the doldrums of the winter. How does food get to the table? What happens to your food before it arrives on the shelf of any deli counter? How many decisions have got to be made before that food gets there? Now here's us, we're checking the weather on an hourly basis. Well I watched the RTE last night and it gives Sunday quite a good day. Go to Sunday, Chloe. Yeah, I guess yeah, Sunday. Sunday. On Monday. On Monday. No, it doesn't give Monday a good day. There's fifty percent chance of rain at ten o'clock Monday morning. But either we mow the grass tomorrow on Sunday and lift it on Monday and Tuesday, and I, as I said to Christopher, would he lift a bit of it, and we lift the half of it, and he lifts the half of it. We need three dry days in a row without rain, um, because the aspect of what we're trying to do is cut this grass and let it naturally dry. So to concentrate the sugars in the grass without putting natural water into the pit of grass, because what they're doing is actually diluting the sugar content. I foresee this being a hard few days. I don't think there'll be much sleep had in the next three to four days. I think it'll probably be day and night. For loads of farmers, I think all the farmers across the UK have probably been experiencing the same uh, climatic conditions. We're really running very late in the year we run the risk of actually losing harvest at this point in time and this is where the challenges in agriculture comes. Is there enough feed to feed the animals? Is there enough grain, you know, for bread and all this type of stuff? So, yes, and, and whatever the shortfall may be in terms of grain will be imported from other countries, but we go back to sustainability. The climate has become very unpredictable because I think we're getting into a warmer climate, into a warmer, wetter climate. When it rains now in... They can really only speak in Northern Ireland here. When it rains, you know, we get more thunderous conditions, uh, more rainstorms now, which are basically doing more harm for us. We control everything in, in terms of precision in the cheese plant because we have the ability to control it. We control nothing in primary agriculture. Climate is everything. You know, when we're trying to grow grain, like wheat and barley and, and oats, you know, we're trying to grow grass, we're trying to harvest. Um, 
ground conditions and weather conditions are the determining factor how well we do our job really and which we have no control over so that's it's a, it's a gamble every day we get up hello Alan Fish yes hi yeah fine thanks yeah We've explored how the pandemic impacted on the lives and work of two farmers in the meat and dairy sectors. Now it's time for a story from the seas, fish in the Shetland Isles. That's about 110 miles off the UK mainland, or, to put it another way, a 14-hour ferry trip from Aberdeen. My name is John Martin Tullock. I've lived in Shetland all my life. I started out at the local boatyard as a joiner then moved into having a small boat and fishing, and now, a couple of years down the line, I'm director of a company that I set up called Island Fish Shetland Limited. So we supply fish locally and export as well. The boats fish here generally from one to three days. They land the catch at either Lerwick or Scalawa fish markets, and they have an auction each weekday that starts at 8 o'clock in the morning and usually runs on until 10, 11 o'clock, um, where we can buy the fresh fish. We collect it from either market, take it back to the unit, get it filleted, and then it's for sale. Generally, we try and get everything prepared for the following day. Um, I, I think the, the most popular fish up here is, without a doubt, haddock. I think in years gone by, then there's a lot of cod up here, um, but that was maybe too valuable to eat because it was all exported. Um, people ate haddock, and it's the same today. At most of the sales that goes through the shop is for fresh haddock. There's really nobody up here that eats cod. The fish are certainly abundant up here, but I think some of the scientists maybe see it different. We don't get any sea bass or bream, or it's mostly haddock, whiten, the ground fish like place, lemon sole and megrams, hake and turbot and halibut and monks. Born and bred up here. My family goes back about 500 years with Shetland Connections. It's quite idyllic in places. The weather can be quite nice at times and fierce at other times. Really, the winter months, it's a lot of gales and there are not much calm spells. I think the biggest thing to try and get used to if anybody was coming here would be the long dark nights in the winter time. We were reasonably busy, it was enough to keep us going and then when we got word of the pandemic and everything was going to be shut down, we didn't really know what, what was going to happen to the business and really overnight the export market had died down. The local sales, that went up massively, but the restaurants and hotels, it was 
just like a, a light switch going off. There were no cells that came through for that. And really, I think to begin with, a lot of people were panic buying. We were trying to get more and more fish in to feed the beast, I suppose. Um, but I think some of the boats, they weren't sure what was happening, and some of them wasn't going to go off. So they were a big shortage of fish just for a few days in the very beginning. And then just on the back of that, then all the boats went off. And I think we the, the European market closing down and stuff getting more difficult to export. There were a lot of fish getting landed at the markets, but nobody was buying it. So the prices just crashed. Some of the fish wasn't sold, but other fish it was just going for very, very cheap. The stuff that's usually exported, the price basically just crashed. And then the boats decided, well, it's not worth their while going off if that's what all they're getting. So, again, they were a, a shortage on the back of that. But it seemed to even at out. Some of the boats with uh, half of the Shetland fleet would stay ashore for two weeks of the month while the other half fished. And then they swapped the boats. So they were controlling the quantity of fish that was coming in at a time, so they got a better price and was enough to supply the local market. They were all working together and uh, some of the boats was getting maintenance done so they decided to tie up the line and get painted up and other maintenance and well, half of them was fishing so it worked well. The Shetland companies, they all get on pretty well and I think in general they all try and work together and help one another but I think more more noticeable with the COVID situation. Shetland is home to the UK's second largest whitefish landing port, and fishing is a huge part of many people's livelihoods. John Martin Tulloch's main market used to be the UK mainland, but when the pandemic hit, that market disappeared, and he had to transform his business. I don't think anybody knew what was going to happen, and well, we didn't really care what to do. My initial thought was to close the shop and try and contain the virus so you weren't, weren't spreading it. And we decided to close the shop on the Wednesday. And we have social media presence. We put on the social media that we were close the shop, but if one of the vehicles was at the unit, then they could just come around to the door and we could supply them with fish. So on the Thursday morning, there was a knock at the door at, uh, I think it was about quarter to ten in the morning, and it was somebody wanting fish, and by the time I got them served, there were other people that was arrived, and I never got out the shop till just after five that night. And that was the Thursday. The Friday was the busiest day that we had before we opened, and then we decided we were going to close and uh, just do deliveries and people can book time slots to come and collect. But yeah, it was very uncertain what was going to happen and I think everybody kind of adapted to the circumstances and trying to, to follow the rules and try to stay safe, I suppose. And the oldest son, he's 15. When the school was closed and he was working most days helping me in the shop because we tried to keep it in the household rather than taking in other employees that would be potentially could spread spread the virus. The first 
few weeks then, it was really just me and my wife and kids all helping in the shop. The smallest girl, she's seven years old. She doesn't fillet fish, but what we did was for doing our deliveries, she did drawings and stay safe with a rainbow or something, and then we'd put that in to random bags and for out for delivery. So the, the people that got the delivery of fish would notice this drawing in it and they would put it up in their windows. When we did do our deliveries the next time, then we could see Laura, as her name, her, her picture up in the windows. And she'd decorate it, paint it, uh, scallop shells, and we put that into different people's orders. So it was just to try and brighten the atmosphere a bit and lift people's spirits. So that was her job and make him. He's the middle boy, he was 12. He was helping backpack fish and just helping out generally. And Willem, he was helping me process some of the fish. So yeah, it was certainly a family thing to begin yeah. with for the first few weeks. We're supplying local produce as well in the shop. A lot of the people new in Shetland are trying to source local produce, whether it's fish or beef, eggs, vegetables, anything, try and get it locally if they can. And there is a change. We certainly have a bigger customer base now as before the lockdown. It's nice, you get a bit of satisfaction if you either catch your own fish or supply fresh fish from local boats and sell it locally and for people to come back and say it they really enjoyed your fish and you, you get a bit of a boost for that but when you ship fish away you really don't get much feedback. We tried to diversify and see what the needs of the people and the community was and just changed how we sold fish to make it more accessible to people that was self-isolating and that type of thing. We've actually been busier for the lockdown doing deliveries and people coming to pick up fish and in some ways it's been good for us but things will change again and we'll have to adapt and just see how people want to buy it, whether it's maybe even move to, to online selling and be able to ship through the UK. Uh, I think things will change again, but I think that the biggest thing that we see is people are wanting to buy local produce more. You look at the whole pandemic, you know, what has it taught us? Life is very precious, and I think the farming community don't enjoy life as well as they should do. I think they see it as a seven-day-a-week job, a 20-hour-a-day job. You know, it shouldn't be like that. It should be like any other business. But unfortunately, there's not the money in primary agriculture to invest in labour to give people a life. It's no wonder that the average age of the farmer in Northern Ireland is 58. You know, why is there no young people coming into the business? Nine to five farmer, have we ever seen one? No, we haven't. You know, I sometimes joke when I say, oh no, I didn't do very much today on a Sunday, but I still worked eight hours. I think that's where Northern Ireland differs from other regions in the UK, that it's not seen to be a, a professional job. It's, it's, it's like a, a way of life. And I think that's where the farming community need to they need to have quality of life as well to enjoy family time. This has taught me a lot about family time and, and that's where I think the succession planning in our farm 
there is some debate hanging over it, you know, is there another generation that's going to come on and take the farm on? When you look at the years and years or decades ago, then people just had their crafts and their small fishing boat and they went off and they caught their fish and they had a few sheep and maybe a cow to get milk and they were very sufficient. Um, they didn't need things like washing machines and they always seemed to be very busy, but they always had time to speak. And now in the modern world, everybody buys things to save time, like dishwashers and washing machines and cars, and they seem to have a lot less time to speak to their neighbours because they have to work so much to pay for all this things that saves time. It's a funny, funny one to think about. On the farm here, we have a building this that was an old creamery. An old creamery that was built maybe 1920, 1930. I would need to look at the old deeds. In the wartime, that was vested off us by the British government to bottle the milk from the local farms for the local areas here. And there's a real history in that building. Stonework is absolutely impeccable in it. The next development of the processing side of our business is that we will put a vending machine into that building. We are moving back in time a hundred years. Uh, I think it's bringing history back to the fore that this is what the building was built for. To provide milk for the local community and that's what we're going to do again. People can come and bring their own bottles, fill them up, take them away and return as frequently as they like. You know, the old ways were certainly maybe not not the worst ways in the world. The pandemic has probably taught us a lot of things. Where does our food come from? How far has it travelled? The journey, the animal, the land, the atmosphere. Is that food produced in a dignified fashion? In the next episode of Who Feeds Us, we hear from people who are coming together to grow their own, and in doing so, reclaiming collective control of urban space, of seeds, and of our idea of what's possible. This episode was produced by Phil Smith. The executive producers of Who Feeds Us are Joe Barrett, Abby Rose, and me, Katie Revel. Call Gordon, Zane Dada, and Fern Towers worked with us as community collaborators to unearth the stories of John Martin Tulloch, Mohsen Hassanen, and Dean Wright. The project manager for Who Feeds Us is Olivia Oldham. Our artwork is by Hannah Grace, and the original music for the series is by Michael O'Neill. Who Feeds Us is possible thanks to the Farming the Future COVID Response Fund. We're very grateful to the A-Team Foundation, the Roddick Foundation, 30 Percy, and the Samworth Foundation for providing the funds to make this project happen. Many thanks also to Farming the Future advisor Dee Woods for her guidance in bringing the team together. I said to my kids the other day, I used to say, whenever they say to me, what's your favourite animal? I would say a lion, because, you know, it's courage and all that kind of stuff. And just, But now I tell them I'm a beaver. They build back the rivers and they build back the, the ecosystem by doing the right actions. The beaver spirit, yeah? The regenerative 
action of a beaver and what he does to a river is what I want to take on and be on my farm and be for the community as well.